your salvation. If today were to be God's day of judgment, are you confident, are you sure, that you would stand in the face of such judgment? Last week when we looked at Zephaniah 1, we saw what I would call the internal warning against Judah. That is, not internal, privately internal, but internal in terms of the nation Judah, God's own nation. God gave to Zephaniah this warning that was internal to Judah because it was a warning to them about their idolatry, about their syncretism, mixing religions together, about their carelessness about the things of God, warning them of God's judgment that was going to come upon them because of these reasons. And he foretold the day of the Lord in chapter 1 and verse uh, 8 of the Lord's sacrifice on that day and then in verse 10 again on that day and then in verse 14 of the great day of the Lord is near. It's a day of wrath is that day, verse 15, a day of distress, an anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of cloudness and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry. He warns of the great day of God, the day of God's judgment and wrath that is coming upon them, a day when God would judge the temple, he would judge Jerusalem. And because he was judging the temple in Jerusalem, he'd be judging the whole world for such as the importance of God's city and God's temple that all the world would be affected by this judgment. And yet he warns, his warning finishes with a perhaps in chapter 2 verse 3 chapter 2 verse 3 where we were finishing last week seek the lord all you humble of the land to do his just commands seek righteousness seek humility perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the lord perhaps there is a chance there is a possibility there is a perhaps that in the midst of this incredible world judgment that is coming upon everybody and will swallow up Judah it's coming upon everybody because of Judah Judah's sin is leading God to bring judgment on all the world but perhaps you who are godly within Jerusalem in Judah perhaps God may hide his people on that occasion from the wrath of his day and so Zephaniah 1 is a warning to Judah from within the people of God. It's an internal warning, but it has within it just the possibility of an escape. Now, chapter 2 is the external warning. It's the warning of the nations around about. Rather than concentrating on Judah and what it's done, it's now concentrating on what the nations have done and what is going to happen to them and why. It commences with Philistia uh, in chapter 2, verses 4 to 7, who are the ancient enemy of Judah, uh, who lived in the land of Canaan, uh, together with the Kerithites. The Kerithites were the Cretans who had settled beside uh, Philistia and set up their land there. But these Philistines lived down by the Mediterranean on the western side of uh, Palestine, over on the Mediterranean coast. They'd long been the enemies of the land of Israel and of Judah. I mean, think back to Samson and and he was fighting Philistines. Think back to, to David and Goliath. Goliath came from the city of Gath, the Philistine city. 
The, the cities of, uh, of Philistines are mentioned here in our verses, Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ekron. They're all cities of, of, uh, Jeruz- of, of the Philistines. And you can see what's going to happen to them. They'll be driven out. They'll be uprooted. And uh, woe to the, the inhabitants of the seacoast, uh, the nation of the Cherethites, because the whole land will be destroyed and uh, left in destruction. We then move on to the next, to the Moabites and the Ammonites. Now, these were the, the cousins of uh, Israel because they were the descendants of Lot. If you remember Lot, he was Abraham's nephew and he and Abraham divided the land together. Remember, Lot took the very fertile land around the great city of Sodom and dwelt in the city of Sodom. And in that dreadful city, when it was destroyed, Lot was just able to escape with his daughters. And out of Lot's family came forth the sons Moab and Ammon, and from them became these nations still living on the eastern side of Palestine, across the uh, Jordan River and across the other side of the Dead Sea. Uh, These cousins were again at enmity with Israel, when Israel moved from Egypt under Moses to travel into the promised land, they wouldn't allow uh, Israel to go through their land but insisted on them travelling around the land and they continued to harry the people of Israel. They were always antagonistic to Israel and so with the seduction and the warfare and their threats upon the land of Israel, they are warned that they too are going to be reduced reduced like Sodom, reduced like Gomorrah. And so in verse 9 they're told that they will be like that terrible conflagration, that terrible earthquake, that terrible destruction that happened, whatever it was, upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And why? Well, because of their pride. And because they taunted God's people. And because they boasted about taking the territory of God's people back from them. And you see there in verses 8, 9 and 11 why it will be like this way. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return, we're told in verse 10, for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. Then there's a single verse against Cush. Uh, Cush his location is not absolutely certain, but we think it is the land south of Egypt, um, the, the northern Sudan. The Ethiopians like to claim it is Ethiopia that we're talking of. It certainly was as far down in Africa as the Israelites knew or had any concern. It was the end of the world. And the people of Cush, they too, this distant, wealthy, powerful and important uh, people on the edge of the universe that was then known, they too will be destroyed, as will be the great northern power of Assyria. And so verses 13 to 15 speak of this mighty empire that was about to be destroyed. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, and it was the major empire of the, of the Middle East at that time. And Nineveh, the massive city, was to be destroyed, and it was indeed destroyed in 612 BC. Zephaniah is prophesying and lived, as you can see from your Bible introduction there, between 640 and 609. So he was leading, living just immediately before the destruction of Nineveh, the great world ruler and city. 
And so you see the reason for their destruction is caught up in their pride in verse 15, the last of our verses today. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. How, how close can you get to the claim of God? For when Moses asks God who he is, God says, if you remember, I am. Tell them I am sent you. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I am. That is God. And that too is Tyre. It's like that too with many an atheist of today. No one is going to define me. I am the master of me. And I determine my life. I am. Very powerful piece of pride and arrogance. And notice the, the hatred of Nineveh and the joy that people have when they see Nineveh fall. What a desolation she has become, a lair for the wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. Again, when you see emperors, unpleasant emperors, people that people hate, destroyed, there is great joy in the destruction. The terrible pictures uh, of Mussolini, that uh, fairly awful Italian tyrant of uh, the Second World War, who was captured and killed, executed publicly, and there is fun and joy that is had in the picture of this man, or the joy that people had when Saddam Hussein was killed, or the joy that broke out in America when, uh, when bin Laden was killed earlier this year. When Nineveh falls, no one mourns because Nineveh has been ruling with an iron fist for a long period of time. And people rejoice to see Nineveh destroyed. And there is Nineveh in the 19... Uh, I've forgotten when the date is of that, but uh, the 20th century, there is Nineveh, just like that's being described here. It's just a field. But at the time of Nineveh's greatness, the time when Zephaniah is speaking, it was the largest, greatest city in the world. And there... There it is, it is but a nothing, open fields. But in all this destruction and ruin, there is the promised remnant of Judah. The nations outside are going to tumble. Those nearby like Philistia and Moab and Ammon, those far away like Cush and Nineveh, they're all going to be destroyed under the power of the Almighty God in his judgment. But little Judah, who has caused this judgment to come upon the world because judgment starts with the temple of God and with the people of God and with the city of God and spreads out to the rest of the world. The little people of Judah, there are the promises of a remnant. There will be deliverance for Judah. In the sea of destruction and judgment, somebody is to be saved like Noah was in the time of the, the great judgment of the flood. And because Judah's hope lies in the nation's destructions for in the nation's destructions Judah will be somehow spared and so we read of the house of Judah in chapter 2 verse 7 back to verse 7 the seacoast shall become the, the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah on which they shall graze in the house of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening for the Lord will God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes Judah is to somehow come out on top through all this. The Philistines' land will become the home for Judah, but not for all of Judah, not for all of the house of Judah, but just for the remnant 
of the house of Judah. Now, who are the remnant? Well, they are the people within the people. For not all the people of Judah are the people of God. The people of Judah were the nation of God, but within the Old Covenant, there is a people within the people. In the New Covenant, all the people are the people. It's one of the fundamental differences between the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God chooses the nation. But within the nation, there are those who really are the chosen people of God. Whereas in the New Covenant, God chooses people to be his, and that is the whole of Christianity. Those who are Christians are chosen to be his. And so who are the remnant? Well, it was the nation that was God's nation, but there were individuals within that nation who were ungodly, just as there were individuals in that nation who were the remnant of faith and trust and obedience to God. And so these are the people whom God saves. It's a, it's a concept that runs through the Old Testament. Let me show it to you elsewhere. In Genesis chapter 45, we read, God sent before me uh, you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alike for you many survivors. Here is the story of Joseph. Here is the story of God choosing to rescue a remnant amongst the peoples. Or in Hezekiah's day in 2 Kings, when God is destroying all in front with the, with the great king Sennacherib, the Assyrian, and wipes out the ten northern tribes of Israel, we read of Hezekiah. It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of Rabshakeh, who was a very rude man saying nasty things about God and the king, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. And therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left, says the prophet to the king. And later in the same chapter we read, and the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors, and the zeal of the Lord will do this. Sometimes a plant is completely chopped down and rooted up and thrown away. But sometimes plants are pruned, and out of the pruning comes greater growth. God is going to destroy Assyria, never to rise again. He's going to destroy the Philistines, never to rise again. But he's going to prune Judah. And out of this pruning will come from the remnant growth that is there, new life that will be abundant, that will be full. And so here in Zephaniah, we see in verse 3 and verse 7, this idea of the remnant of some people who may survive. And that's what they're called, they're survivors. In chapter 2, verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9, the remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. Through all the, the judgment that's coming upon the nations and the turmoil that is going to happen in this worldwide confrontation, there will be survivors amongst Judah and they shall possess the land. It's like the psalmist says, it's the meek who shall inherit the land. 
It's not the powerful, it's not the mighty, it's not the strong, it's the meek. Remember, meek doesn't mean weak. Meek means those who are humble. You can be very strong and be meek at the same time. You can be very weak and be the opposite of meek at the same time, proud and arrogant. Meek means humble. It's the humble who will inherit the land. It's the ones to whom God gives the land who will inherit the land. And that is his remnant, the small group of survivors. And all this is because the nations are to be destroyed. And in verse 11, something even more extraordinary is said. Come with me to verse 11, because it is an extraordinary statement for them to be hearing. The Lord will be awesome against them and he will finish all the gods of the earth and to him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nations. This would be something of a shock even to the remnant that it's not just the remnant who are going to bow down and worship God but the nations are as well. You see, if you've got a very clear Jewish covenant idea We're the chosen people of God. All them out there are the pagans. God is going to destroy the pagans and preserve our nation. But Zephaniah starts off by saying, now you're supposed to be the covenant people of God and you're being ungodly. So God's going to start by destroying you. And the destruction of you is going to spread out to the nations. But perhaps some of you will survive and God will start the nation again. Well, you can still live with that much, can't you? But the next bit says, and other people from the other nations are also going to worship God. Now, that really is a... That's a strange idea for them to cope with. That is not the expected idea. But here in chapter 2 of Zephaniah is one of the great reversals of the Bible. We're told in Malachi 3 that the judgment begins with the temple of God, but now we see judgment beyond the temple, beyond Jerusalem, beyond Judah, beyond the cousins, Ammon and Moab, beyond the pagan neighbours, Philistines, to the very end of the world, Cush and Assyria, the greatest powers at the very edge of the pagan world is all going to be destroyed. The nations, all of them, are going to be held accountable to God their opposition to God and the opposition to God's people and their idolatry and their arrogance is all going to be held and God is going to judge them and destroy them and everything will be taken into account. And in this destructive judgment on the nations, the perhaps becomes a certainty. For the mighty salvation of God becomes a certainty for the remnant of his people. Where it is a perhaps, back in chapter 2, verse 3, it becomes a certainty in verses 7 and verse 9. The sea coasts shall become the possessions of the remnant of the house of Judah. Or in verse 9, Therefore as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom, the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles, salt pits, a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nations shall possess them. And so the certainty took effect when the remnant returns. When it returns from Babylon, it took effect. 
For after the fall of Nineveh in 612 BC came the fall of Jerusalem in 587 BC. But the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians was followed some generation later with the fall of Babylon itself. And the astonishing thing, the return of Israel, of Judah, the return under Nehemiah and Ezra to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. It may have taken the best part of a century for Zephaniah to come true, but the unimaginable kept happening, just as God predicted. Fifty years ago this week, the Berlin Wall went up. It's hard to imagine now, but frankly, when it was up, we never thought it would come down, did we? It was some wall. It was massive. And it didn't look like it would ever come down. And the eastern block was powerful and as strong as to contend against the western block. They got into space before we did. The arrival of Sputnik was a terrifying experience for it said the eastern block knows as much and is as powerful and is as technologically advanced as anybody on this side and the Berlin Wall stood there as a great testimony to the world's division between East and West, rivalling with two huge empires, their resources, their wealth, their power. It could not come down that wall. But it did. And it did virtually overnight, didn't it? It all happened in a week or so. The people just took it down. It was an astonishingly quick thing to happen. And so who would have imagined that Nineveh would collapse? That Ammon, that Moab, the Philistines would be defeated? And who could possibly imagine that Judah was going to survive? It's all unimaginable what is being said here, except Zephaniah said it would happen. And within a hundred years of Zephaniah, it did happen. These nations had gone and Judah had come back and was replanted and was growing again. It's one of the great marvels of history that the non-Christian world actually finds hard to explain, namely the continued existence of the Jews. They were never powerful and they've always been persecuted. And yet... You've never met a Moabite, have you? And you don't come across Ammonites, do you? But doesn't matter which part of the world you go to today, you'll come across Jews. That's an extraordinary thing. The people of Nineveh, the people of Cush, nothing. But the people of Judah have continued for two and a half thousand years after this was written. This was the group that God said a remnant would come back and would rebuild and would re-establish. Still, not everything is as you would expect it from Zephaniah 2. For the fortunes were not restored to Judah, as in verse 7, and the nations were not plundered, as in verse 9. Indeed, the remnant house of Judah 
was just that. It was a remnant, tiny, puny, weak, impoverished, defeated little third-rate power, just hanging on to possession of the land by the collaboration of the invaders and oppressors who ruled over them, the Greeks and the Ptolemies and the Seleucids and the Romans. But then came Jesus. When all Israel is reduced to a tiny remnant and the ultimately the remnant is reduced to one man, and that one man was the one obedient son of Judah, the one obedient son of God hanging on a cross. When the one true Jew who brought before the judgment of God dying as the Passover lamb, when the one true Jew comes to the fulfilment of all the Old Testament, the enemies of God's people are finally defeated. The enemies of evil and of death and of Satan. And the people of God are finally saved. But when the people of God are finally saved, what a people of God it turns out to be. For they were drawn from all the nations. More than just the remnant of Israel, as were converted, for example, on the day of Pentecost, 5,000 of them, or the remnant of the people of Judah, there were people from all nations and to the ends of the world, to, to nations that were unimaginable to first century Christian preachers like Australia, that all around the world and all over the world and down the centuries, men and women have acknowledged the God of Israel through the death and resurrection of his son, the one true remnant man of God. And so from every nation, every tribe and every language people come until you get that picture in Revelation 7. In Revelation 7 on page 1240 in your Bibles. That incredible picture, just turn with me to 1240. That marvellous picture where he heard a number and saw 144,000 from the tribes of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from each of the tribes, the first one at the very top of their being, Judah. And when he'd seen all this 144,000 of the people of God, the 12 times 12, the very symbolic number of the people of God, after this verse 9 I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to the, our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Through Jesus, through that Lamb of God who was sacrificed on our behalf, we get the white robe, which is not the robe of purity, it's the robe of victory. White in the book of Revelation is the symbol of victory. We get the salvation that belongs to God on this time, but it all comes through Jesus. But notice, it's the nations. Every nation, tribe and language, all over the world, people are now worshipping God. But yet we are still waiting 
waiting for that day to come, waiting the end of paganism, for the world has continued in its rebellion against God and against the Messiah, even in the midst of a growing number of people worshipping and acknowledging the King. There are more people alive today worshipping the Lord Jesus Christ in more languages and nations than ever in history till this moment of time. And yet, we're still waiting because all around us we still see superstition and idolatry, astrology and new age religions. We still see the religious rejection of the God and creator of mankind, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we still see people in their sinful arrogance, the powerful, the boastful, the wealthy, the self-made men and women who are worshipping their own maker and who claim they have no need of God. And we still have people trying to seduce God's people away from worshipping him or persecuting the believers because they stand firm. And we still have God's people being persecuted around the world and God's remnant having to stand firm. But now, our position is different because now, knowing the certainties of who is saved and why, we're not living in the perhaps we will be saved. God's plan and God's victory gives us the assurance of our salvation. We don't live under perhaps that God will save us and hide us and have mercy upon us, we live under the certainty of God saving us because he has already done so in the death and resurrection of his son. He's already paid the penalty for the sins of the world and risen and started his judgment. For we've seen God fulfill his promises to Judah. And the nations were destroyed, Judah was rescued, saved and preserved, but more. We've seen God fulfill his promises in a greater and more spectacular way in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so we know the penalty for sin has been paid for. We know the judgment of the world has commenced and we know that all who have their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will be forgiven and will be pardoned when that great final day of judgment comes and all evil is done away with. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the death and resurrection of Jesus and the fact that we can know of a certainty of our salvation or of our damnation. And we do pray, Father, that each one of us here in this room today and each of our families might know of a certainty that salvation, that rescue that Jesus has won, that we might be freed from the condemnation and wrath and judgment of the world that we might know with confidence your kindness and mercy to us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.